based upon the sacrifice that Christ has made on our behalf. God, we pray that we would be your witnesses and ambassadors, that we would go out into this world, that we would go into the darkness in order to proclaim Christ crucified, in order to bring your light to those who desperately need it. So God, we pray you would guide this time. The Lord, you would grab a hold of our attention, that you would stir our affections towards yourself alone. God, we pray all of these things. We ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Revelation 20, verse 6. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Jacob Smith. I'm the teaching pastor here at our Southwood campus, and I want to welcome you to Grace. If you're new here, we're especially thankful that you've joined us this morning as we sing praise to our God and as we study His Word. And you are joining us on really the tail end of a semester-long series where we have been walking through week by week, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the book of Revelation. This final book in our Holy Scripture, this, this book that contains incredible promises and prophecies about the end of days, about what is to come. And God has given us this future knowledge, not simply that we would log it away, not simply that we would be more knowledgeable, but God has given us this knowledge in order to transform our present understanding, that we would think and speak and live differently based on what the Lord has said based upon the promised victory that he describes in the book of Revelation. And one of the things we've seen week after week in the book of Revelation is really this, this pairing of, of two uh, ideas, these two concepts, this idea that, that we should feel comforted knowing that victory is secure, knowing that God's will will prevail. That is a comfort to us. But also, in the book of Revelation, we find this, this urgency, we find this motivation to live differently, to be compelled to move forward and to, to work for the kingdom of God, that we would bring his light and his justice and his mercy to the world around us. And this pairing is really something that we see not only in the book of Revelation, this is something we encounter really in lots of spheres of life. Uh, the best, uh, you know, engagement I was ever a part of directly, well, the only engagement I was ever a part of directly was in 2009, uh, with my now wife, Susan, I proposed to her in 2009, and we, uh, it, was, it was the culmination of, of months of planning and preparation, right? I'd been saving and, and then choosing a ring, and, and I had been like orchestrating events and, you know, like lining things up, this like big picnic thing that we were going to have, and, you know, didn't tell her anything about it because that's what love does. It hides secrets, right? Like that's, that's kind of what we've accepted in our modern culture, and so as I kind of moved all these things, as I was the puppet master arranging events and, and material, eventually it all culminated in this moment where I got out the ring, it was a big surprise, and, and I asked her to be my wife. I said, hey, can, let's hang out till we die. She's like, okay, cool, right? And she, she was on board, she accepted. 
And when she said yes to that proposal, what it was, was it was, it was a comfort for me, right? I felt incredible comfort knowing, wow, this is secure. Like, I knew what she was going to say. We'd already talked about it, like, spoiler alert, right? But, we, but like, it was still, like, official now. It was official. The ring was on her finger, and, and there was incredible comfort and satisfaction and joy in that. But what I didn't anticipate was that as soon as, you know, we, she said yes, and the ring was on, and we both, like, wipe our tears away, uh, whenever that was done, uh, as we were basking in the comfort of our love, all of a sudden, like really right away, within minutes, we were compelled to then start thinking and dreaming and planning for what was to come. Like that comfort was good and it was reassuring, but, but it moved us forward to begin thinking about and planning for the destination that our relationship was designed for. So just after she said yes, we're like, okay, so, like, we need to pick a day, like, we need to pick our colors, like, one of us is going to have to learn calligraphy to, like, address envelopes, you know, like, we got, we're going to have to, like, start doing these things to be ready for this wedding day that's fast approaching. And all of us, you know, in different spheres, we feel that. We felt it when we had our first kid. Like, when you have a baby, that's, it's an amazing, comforting moment that my wife was carrying this child for months and months, and all of a sudden, she's born, and we're, oh my gosh, we get to see her, and she sees us, and it's this, oh, amazing, comforting moment. But then immediately after, like, it's compelling us forward. Then we're like, okay, well, now we need to, like, sign legal documents. It's like, yes, she is our daughter we promise, you know, and like we have to like start buying diapers and we need to start learning about all the dangerous things that we grew up with that now the, you know, doctors are like, no, that, that kind of crib, what? You know, and so we had, to, we had to learn all these new things. It happens when you get accepted to, to college. Like I remember being accepted to A&M and I was super excited. I was comforted by that acceptance. But then I'm like, okay, when I need to pick like which five organizations I'm going to join, I need to like pick my dorm, I need to like find a roommate, I have to register for a class or something, I don't know, whatever. You know, like, and I just had to get all that done because out of that comfort, I was compelled to live and think differently, to move forward in a new direction. And this is what we see presented to us in Revelation chapter 20. This, this comfort that comes knowing that the kingdom of God is imminent, knowing that the kingdom of God is promised, but then also this compulsory feeling, this feeling of being compelled forward to live in light of that promise, to live in light of the eternity that is waiting for us. And so if you'll turn with me to Revelation chapter 20, we're going to look through the entire chapter this morning. If you want to go there in your Bible or go there on your phone. Uh, but in Revelation 20, we see this play out really in, in two main movements, kind of the first half and the second half, where we see that there is a justice that God has promised, the kingdom that is coming. It comforts his people. And yet, along with the kingdom of God, there's also the judgment of Christ that compels us to think and speak and live differently in the here and now. So if you read with me in verse 1 of chapter 20, John says this. So if you're, or sorry, if you remember in chapter 19, we were there a few weeks ago, uh, he was describing the, this big battle, this big defeat of some of the enemies of God, that Jesus returns in Revelation 19 on his white horse. He's leading the armies of heaven, and they defeat Satan's followers. They defeat Satan himself, and this this grand victory for the kingdom of heaven. And so then after this amazing defeat, after this incredible victory in God's name, John says that I saw an angel descending from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the abyss and a huge chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and he tied him up for a thousand years. So this is the beginning of what we describe as the millennial kingdom, this thousand year reign of Christ on earth that we'll see more details of later in the chapter. 
And the angel, verse 3, then threw Satan into the abyss and locked and sealed it so that he could not deceive the nations until the 1,000 years were finished. For after these things, he must be released for a brief period of time. Whoa. Okay, that's going to be interesting. We'll get to it in a moment. Uh, but essentially what we see here is a, is a, a setup for, the, as I said, the millennial reign of Christ, where he is establishing God's kingdom on earth for a certain you know, portion of humanity. And we'll get into more details in a moment, but what I want us to catch right here on the front end of it is that when Satan is cast into this abyss, what it is is he's being cast into this, this holding place. And it's something that we don't talk about a lot, or maybe we don't necessarily think about a lot, but, but when we talk about death and when we think about what happens after we die, uh, there is some interesting uh, theology that comes from Scripture that there's still a lot of conversation around, there's still a lot of discussion about in biblical scholarship around, like, hey, how exactly does all this work? But it seems to be that there is uh, this holding place here it's described as an abyss. Elsewhere in Scripture, uh, we see in the Hebrew, it's the term Sheol. In the Greek, in the New Testament, uh, the, the Greek term for Sheol is Hades. And it seems to be describing this place where all people go to await judgment. Now, there's discussion around, okay, is it, is it all people even now? It's more likely probably that this is all people before the resurrection of Christ went there, and now maybe it's a little bit different. But, but either way, there seems to be this place that the Hebrews called Sheol, that's described in Greek as Hades, where all people, both the, the people of God, the followers of God, but then also the enemies of God go to await their final judgment. And one of the things, or one of the reasons we, we hold to this, one of the arguments for it, is a story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16, where he describes the events that follow the death of two very different individuals the rich man and Lazarus. So this is what he says in Luke 16. He says that there was a rich man who dressed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. But at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus whose body was covered with sores who longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. And in addition, the dogs came and they licked the poor man. They licked Lazarus's sores. So, so Jesus is setting it up with these two very different individuals. The rich man who's living in luxury, Lazarus, who's, who's hurt, he's, he's, he's poor, he's impoverished, he's, he's wounded, dogs are licking his wounds. Ugh, it's, it's a tough picture to take in. But Jesus is going to continue and describe what happens when both of these men die. He says, when the poor man dies, when Lazarus died, he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, as he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far off with Lazarus at his side. So as I said, this Greek term Hades is the same idea as the Hebrew term Sheol that we see a lot of times in the, New, in the Old Testament. And apparently in this post-death moment, you know, this post-death experience, both Lazarus and the rich man have gone to this place. They've gone to Hades. They've gone to Sheol. But while they're both in the same kind of general location, their experiences there are very, very different. Lazarus has gone to Abraham's side, another term for this. Uh, the traditional term is Abraham's bosom, that, that you're with Abraham close. Uh, but, but the rich man is in across a chasm in a different area, and their experiences are very, very different, right? Because the rich man, he calls out and he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in anguish in this fire. So the rich man, where he is, is it's torment. It's, it's horrible, 
whereas Lazarus is enjoying the comfort of essentially paradise on this other side of Hades, on this other side of Sheol. But Abraham says to the rich man, he says, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. And Lazarus likewise, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. So again, it's one place, but there's a divide, and there's two sections where the experience is very, very different for those who belong to the Lord or those who were opposed to him. And Abraham says, besides all this, a great chasm's been fixed between us so that those who want to cross from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. So this is really what what Jesus is describing here is actually an affirmation of theology that was developed during the intertestamental times. This 500 years of silence from the final prophet of the Old Testament to the the arrival of John the Baptist, there's 500 years that, that God used in dramatic ways to shape the nation of Israel and to prepare the way for Christ, for Jesus. And yet, he didn't write new scripture. We weren't given new prophets. There isn't, we don't have books of the Bible that were written during that time because God said, I'm going to be silent. I'm not going to speak again until one comes in the spirit of Elijah, the one that we now understand was John the Baptist. But during that time, the people of God, right, the Israelites, they, they were thinking and they were writing. And, and one of the things that they came up with, they sort of solidified this framework that's alluded to in the Old Testament that is after death, before Christ, that all people go to this holding place, the Sheol or Hades. And it seems in Luke 16 that Jesus is affirming that, that he's affirming this, this theology, this framework that had been developed. And he, but it, what's different here, what we need to make sure we're taking note of, is this is different from the concept of purgatory that some of us might be familiar with. Purgatory would say, or the idea of purgatory is that you go to this holding place and then you can atone for past mistakes or you can make new decisions and new choices and change your ways. This is not presented in Scripture. We don't see that in Luke 16. In fact, we see the opposite, that, that as Jesus is describing these events, that it's, it's set, it's done. That, that the rich man's choices were made, his, essentially his destination is set, and same for Lazarus. And so the rich man is in torment, Ra- Lazarus is in comfort, but both of them are awaiting this final judgment that we'll actually get to in Revelation 20. And so as Jesus is describing for us this kind of, this place of waiting, this is where it seems to be that Satan has been cast, that he's been bound and and constrained during the millennial reign, during this thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. And so John goes on, if you go back to Revelation 20, verse 4, he says that, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. So so John is seeing people elevated to positions of authority. And, And the people that are most clearly in view here are martyrs, those who died during the tribulation. He describes them further. He says, these are the ones who did not worship the beast. They didn't worship his image, or and they had refused to receive his mark on their forehead or their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. 
you'll remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how there's a moment that comes in the tribulation where people are given a choice. You can accept the mark of the beast or you can reject it. If you accept it, you're, you're okay. Like you can deal, like you can have a business, you can get food, like you can do all the things, live your best life now. Uh, but if you reject it, you're persecuted, you're destroyed, and ultimately you probably die for the fact that you have rejected the beast and you've chosen to follow God. So John is describing here essentially vindication for those martyrs, for those saints. He says they have now been elevated and they came to life and they get to reign with Christ during this thousand years. For the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were finished. And this is the first resurrection. So John is saying this is a special position for these martyrs. Now, there's discussion in biblical scholarship around, okay, are there others included in that resurrection? Is it just the tribulation saints, the tribulation martyrs? Are there others? Maybe. Uh, but the clearest in view in this passage are these tribulation saints, the ones who have been martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. So John says, blessed and holy is the one who takes part in this first resurrection, for the second death has no power over them. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Years. It's this message of hope, of deliverance, of, of, justific- of you know, justice and vindication for those who followed Christ, even in the face of adversity. And this seems to speak into, this seems to inform our view of a kingdom, this thousand-year kingdom that's described earlier in Scripture. It's the same kingdom that seems to have been described in Micah chapter 5, where the prophet says that as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, seemingly insignificant among the clans of Judah, from you a king will emerge who will rule over Israel on my behalf, one whose origins are in the distant past, and he will assume his post, and he will shepherd the people by the Lord's strength, by the sovereign authority of the Lord as God, and they will live securely, for at that time he will be honored even in the distant regions of the earth, and he will give us peace. It's a prophecy, it's a promise about this perfect king who would come, the king that we now know as Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ. And yet when we look at the first appearance, when we look at the first advent of Christ, uh, even though he talks about the kingdom of God, we don't see a kingdom like this. Right? He's not honored in all regions of the earth. In fact, it's very localized. And, and this is something that we see, honestly, throughout a lot of Scripture, that the kingdom of God takes many different forms. In the Old Testament, with the, the nation of Israel, God had established a theocracy. For his people, for the Israelites, for the descendants of Abraham, he says, I will be your king. You don't need a human king. I'm going to rule over you, and you're going to follow my command, and I'm going to take care of you. And he created a theocracy where the king and, and the object of worship was one and the same. It was God himself, Yahweh. And yet, over time, the people of Israel rejected that idea. They eventually told God, they're like, well, yeah, that's cool, but like, we want a human king. Like, all the other nations have human kings, and like, super cool, like, we want a human king. And God warned him, he says, if I give you a human king, he's going to be bad. Like, it's not going to go well for you. He's going to like, take your kids, and he's going to, you know, impoverish you with taxes. You sure you want one? They're like, yeah, 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 we do. And then they get a king, and they're like, wow, this is terrible. And God's like, yeah, I like, just told you that. Like, I'm paraphrasing, but that's, you know, essentially what takes place in the Old Testament. 
God then changed, so that was, you know, the initial kingdom of God. It was the theocracy of the nation of Israel. When Jesus came, he actually talked about the kingdom of God being there, present with Jesus himself. And it was a very focused and localized kingdom. Because when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God uh, in his life and ministry on earth, he described the kingdom of God as essentially being wherever he was. So he says, if you are with me, you're now, if you're following me, I'm, I've now invited you into the kingdom of God. It was this localized form of the kingdom that we now, as the church, get to kind of continue in a spiritual form. Jesus talked about how the kingdom would, would continue to expand even in his absence. And Paul talks about this a lot. Other letters in our New Testament talk about how we as the church are the spiritual embodiment of the kingdom of God. And so that's why, even as Eddie, was, our elder, was talking about giving in our ministry here at Grace, that's what we hold. That's, that's a biblical view, that we are, as the church, furthering the kingdom of God in a spiritual sense, right? We don't have Jesus sitting on a physical throne that we can look at here and now, but we trust that he's reigning in heaven at the right hand of the Father, so it's a spiritual kingdom. But what we have described in Revelation 20, what we see prophesied in Micah 5, is that there will be, in fact, a permanent, worldwide, established, perfect kingdom that Jesus will reign over. When everyone, and even the distant regions of the earth, will acknowledge his authority, where everyone experiences peace. We don't have it yet. But it's something that we look to. It's something that we have hope in. And so this is what has begun in Revelation, or appears to have begun in Revelation chapter 20. But it's not all perfect. It's not actually complete yet because there's one final battle to take place. If you'll read with me, it keeps going in verse 7. It says that now when the thousand years are finished, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to bring them together for the battle. And they are as numerous as the grains of sand in the sea. So this is a very interesting turn of events that we don't have a lot of information about. This is kind of one of the only moments. There's a similar battle referred to in Ezekiel 38 and 39 uh, with some of the same terms, but it's probably describing a different battle. Here is probably the only specific time we have describing this final confrontation, where after a thousand years, even though Satan was bound for a thousand years in that holding place in Sheol, that he's been released. And he's released in order to deceive the nations and turn people against the Lord. These people who are probably the descendants of individuals who were in, you know, brought into this millennial kingdom of, of Christ. And even though they've been living in perfection in this perfect kingdom of God, they are still willing to believe the lies and follow the lead of Satan himself. And so they went up on the broad plain, verse 9, of the earth, and they encircled the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them completely. Okay, I love this description. Because essentially, it it's almost feels like a bait and switch. We've got this like, big setup. We're like, oh my goodness, like, Satan is released. He's deceiving the nations. There's this huge and this numerous army that he rallies against the people of God. They've encircled. They're besieging the saints, those who still trust God and the, those who follow the command of Christ. And as they're all lined up, they're all ready to go. It's like this battle's about, like, it's about to get wild. Like, this is the big culminating like, crescendo moment of history. God's like, nah, let's not. And he just, he just burns. It's just done. 
Just, and he just fire comes down. He's like, we're not, let's not do that again. Like, there's no dramatic, you know, it's not like in the general's led and they storm the hill and there's this back and forth. And God's just like, no, nah, let's, no, we're done. We're done. Boom, it's over. And so why does this happen? Why would God allow Satan to emerge from captivity to deceive the nations? How, again, th- we don't have a ton of information around this. I think what is in view, what I think we see somewhat clearly is that this is a, a, le- a bare minimum. It's an illustration of the brokenness of humanity. That some of us might be tempted to look back. We, you know, it's, there's parallels here. It's almost like an expanded version of what happened in the Garden of Eden, where God created Adam and Eve, and he put them in this perfect, small little garden. And he says, I want you to live in harmony with, with my creation. I want you to create. I want you to cultivate. I want you to take care of this. I'm giving you authority and dominion, and I want you to trust me. And yet they believe the lie of Satan in the garden, that, that lie that gets whispered into their ear that, hey, maybe God doesn't really want your best. Maybe God's actually holding out on you. And so they choose to believe that lie rather than the truth of their God. And so they, they, they make the wrong decision. They follow their own way. They, they, they chart their own path. And in doing so, they bring death and sin into all of the world. And it could be easy for us to look at that and think like, oh, I would probably do better than that. Like, come on, like how, how dumb you gotta be to like not, you know, were they born yesterday? Like, kind of, you know, but like, you know, did they, like how could they possibly make that same mistake? And I think what we see here is essentially a parallel, an expanded version of that. Where we see that all of these people who've been living in not a perfect little garden, but in a perfect kingdom, established by Christ of peace, and yet they still naturally will drift. Some of them still drift towards rebellion, towards their own way over the Lord's, towards believing the lies of God's enemy rather than the truth that God has given them. And none of us are immune from that. I think that's what we see here is this this conviction that really all of us, in and of ourselves, we are fallen, we are broken, right? It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. Like, that's what we see right here. It's truth. It's truth. That we are flawed and broken beyond our own ability to repair. And so, praise the Lord that the day will come, that even after the thousand years, even after this final confrontation that's really almost not even a confrontation, that then the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet are too, and they will be tormented their day and night forever and ever. So what we're told is that eventually God will bring about final, complete victory over our enemy. He will eradicate evil fully, because that's what we need. We don't need a partial victory. We need an absolute victory, and that's what God has promised, that his kingdom will come, not just the millennial reign of Christ, but that his perfect kingdom that we'll have described in Revelation 21 and 22, that it will come, that all brokenness will be repaired, that all of creation will be redeemed, that all of his enemies will be fully and finally and eternally vanquished, thrown into this lake of fire, the term of hell. It's different from Hades. It's different from Sheol. It's a permanent location for the enemies of God, where they are forever tormented, where they are forever uh, taken away out of. They're, they're, they lose the presence of the Lord for all of eternity. And for us, this should be comforting. It should be comforting, comforting for us to know that God's kingdom will come, that he has promised this, this perfect eternal reign, 
That's a good thing. That's a hopeful thing. And what it is is it, it helps us better understand the, the non-permanence, the temporalness, the, the temporariness of our present kingdoms because we are designed to build and God created us to build and, and create and cultivate. God wants us to do that. And yet it can be really frustrating for us. It's frustrating for me to build these little kingdoms of, okay, well, I've got this like career decision and, oh, I've got these relationships and I have like this, you know, these ideas of how my family should function or how my friend group should function. And, and we create these little kingdoms and we establish them and eventually they fail or they're flawed, whether it's, you know, circumstance, whether it's our own inability, whether it's others' failure, these things, they, they fall apart. There's cracks in the foundations. And that can be really discouraging for us. For my wife and I, our, our youngest, our three-year-old, he is in the season of life where he loves creating pillow forts. Like, that's his jam right now. And so whether it's in his room or especially in our living room, he loves to take, like, all of our couch cushions and assemble them and get blankets and pillows, and he makes these elaborate structures and forts uh, that he can use for his own comfort, uh, for his own glory, and establish his dominance over his stuffed animals. That's what he loves to do. But as much as he loves building these little forts, these little kingdoms, so too is he just overwhelmed. Greater anguish have I, I've never seen in his life, in his three and a half blessed years of life. I've never seen him more just disappointed and dismayed and anguished than when he comes out of his room in the morning and discovers that his kingdom has been disassembled. Why? Because my wife and I need to live our lives and we need to sit on the couch. And so we have to take these things apart and put it back together. We can't revolve around little, his kingdom. Like we can't do that. And when he sees it, oh, he's so upset. He's so sad. Even though we warned him the night before, we're like, hey, bud, we're going to take it apart because, you know, mom and I, we don't revolve around you. S surprise. Uh, and he's like, yeah, 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 okay, okay. But then he sees it, and it, oh, you'd think he had never experienced, you know, trouble in his life, which he really hasn't. He's three and a half. But it is just, it's devastating to him. And it happens to us. Where we think, oh, I've got everything lined up. I've got these plans. I've got these, you know, Christmas plans. Or I've got these academic plans or these work plans. And, and the reality is that these kingdoms on some level, they fail. They falter. They're fractured. And so it should be comforting to us to know that God is establishing a kingdom that will never end, that will never fail, that is perfect, that we can enjoy for all of eternity. And it's something that we should be praying for. It's something that we should be begging the Lord to bring sooner rather than later. And I say this because this is exactly how Jesus instructed his followers to pray. When his disciples asked him for guidance in how to pray, they said, Jesus, you pray in this amazing way that we've never, we've never seen anyone pray like you, have, like you do. So would you guide us? Would you instruct us? And so Jesus gives them what we refer to as the Lord's Prayer. And he says, hey, here's some building blocks, some kind of, uh, here's a foundation, a launch pad for you to consider as you pray to the Lord, as you pray to God. And his opening statement, the opening portion of that prayer that he gives as a model is God in heaven May your name be honored, right? Hallowed be your name. In other words, God, you come first above all else. So God, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus instructs his followers, pray for the arrival of this kingdom. Ask the Lord to bring his kingdom because that's where your hope should lie. That's where your hope really should be. It's in the kingdom of God, not in the kingdom you construct. And that's something that I have tried to commit myself to pray for every day. 
One of, one of my disciplines, one of the habits I've, I'm, you know, trying to build is that the first thing I do in the mornings when I wake up is that I, I give just a short prayer to the Lord that's essentially this. That's essentially praying to God, saying, God, I want, may your kingdom come. Lord, use me, use my life to, to bring your kingdom. And God, as you build this temporary kingdom on earth, God, I pray, the spiritual kingdom, God, I pray that your real kingdom, that Jesus would return. It's something I long for now, than I, more now than I ever have before. As my wife and I have dealt with just a variety of issues and, and, and problems in, in our family and, and health issues, it's something that really, God, suffering's not good. It's not good. But God doesn't waste it. God will use it. And one of the ways that God has used suffering in our lives is he has ingrained into me a, a longing for the return of Christ that I've never had previously. And so I pray, I say, God, may your kingdom come. God, establish it on earth. Lord, may Jesus come quickly. We should pray for that. Pray for it every morning. And as we look forward to, as we long for the kingdom of God, we're comforted, but we need to recognize that judgment comes with that kingdom, and that judgment should compel us to think and speak and live differently in light of what is coming. This is how John describes it, starting in verse 11. He says that, Then I saw a large white throne, and the one who was seated on it, and the earth and the heaven fled from his presence, and there was no place found for them. So this is what we call the great white throne judgment. John is saying that this, this throne is established, that all of creation is going to come before it. Even if, you know, there are elements, there are parts of creation that don't want to be judged, he says, too bad. Like, there's nowhere to flee to. There's no place found for them if they're trying to escape the judgment of Christ at this great white throne. He says, it's, it's inevitable for all of creation. Because I saw the dead and the great and the small, and they were all standing before the throne. And then books were opened, and another book was opened, the book of life. So the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to their deeds. So John describes in this judgment that there's a few different books that are used. There's these initial books that seem to have an accounting of the lives and the works, the deeds of the individuals that are standing before the throne. He says, but there's another book, the book of life. And there's a stark difference in how these books are used. These books of works are examined and they inform the judgment that these people receive, right? And so the Lord looks through the, the lives lived by these individuals and he says, okay, these things are within my will, these things are outside of my will, and there's judgment that comes because of the actions that they, that they you know, did that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each one was judged according to his deeds. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, for this is the second death, the lake of fire. So John is describing this judgment that takes place. Everyone is judged. And this is kind of, again, speaks to the temporary nature of Hades itself, that Sheol, that temporary holding place. says they now give up the dead that were awaiting final judgment. Judgment has come. So they give up the, the people that are in them. And their job is done. Hades' role is complete. So therefore, death and Hades, they were thrown into the lake of fire. He says, and this is the second death. So our first death being physical, where our, our spirit and our body are separated. He says, this is the second death, where the destination, the permanent destination of our soul is determined. And remember, he says, for those that are resurrected with Christ, the second death holds no power. We get to remain with the Lord in eternity in, in, in paradise, in his presence. But for those who aren't in Christ, 
who are standing entirely on their deeds, this is what they experience. They experience this, this second death, this lake of fire, the term that, this is the same term as hell. But if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, that person was thrown into the lake of fire. See, that's what's key. So we have the books of works that are important, that are used by the Lord in pronouncing judgment, but we have the book of life. And we're told earlier in the book of Revelation, how does your name get into the book of life? It's not by your work. It's not by your deed. It's not by your action. It's not by your accomplishment. Your name in the book of life is only there by grace, by God's grace, through your faith in Jesus Christ. That those who trust in the name of Jesus Christ, that, those are the people whose names are then written into the book of life. So yes, our work matters, but the work of Christ is what matters most. And so our eternal salvation is not dependent upon the good and the bad. It's not scales that are weighed that determine whether or not we get to enter into the presence of God for all of eternity. The entire, the only rubric, the only grading standard for whether or not we get to enter into eternal rest with the Lord is simply whether or not our name is written in that book of life. And that name is written based entirely upon the grace of God through our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, does our work matter? Yes. Our lives are not a wash. We have multiple times in Scripture different judgments that maybe it's all kind of contained within this great white throne moment. There's also an argument that, that maybe there are separate judgments that take place at the end of history in these final days. One of those judgments is described as the judgment seat of Christ. It's what Paul speaks to in 1 Corinthians. He talks about in 2 Corinthians 5. He says that we all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be paid back according to what he has done while in the body, whether good or evil. He's describing that even believers, we stand before this judgment seat of Christ, which again, some would argue it's one and the same as the great white throne. I'm personally convinced uh, that this is a, a distinct judgment for believers where we stand before the Lord and he judges our work. And it's not whether or not he's going to condemn us to eternal torment, but it's simply a judgment based upon which he offers and gives reward where he honors the, the work that we've done, the, the, the commands we've obeyed. God says, I, I want you to live a life that matters most. I want you to invest in what matters most because Christ's judgment will come. It will come. So our lives matter. Our choices matter. And so we need to be honest. We need to take assessment of, am I living according to the will of God or to my own? We're warned in Scripture that we can harden ourselves, even as believers, even as followers of Jesus Christ, who've been given the Holy Spirit as our guide, as our comforter, as our counselor. We can harden our hearts towards the Spirit, and we can resist His conviction. We can grieve Him. We can, we can resist. We can, we can fall back on our old ways, on our old flesh, on our sinful desires, rather than following the command of God, rather than walking by the Spirit. And so we're commanded in Scripture, man, run from that. Flee temptation. Live according to the will of the Lord. Walk by the Spirit. Because this judgment will come and reward is awaiting those who live according to the will of the Lord. That's a wonderful promise. But it requires that we are intentional in examining our lives and asking the Lord to help us examine. Just as I try to pray daily for the Lord to 
bring the kingdom of heaven, I also try to, on the tail end, at the end of the day, I try to pray and always be intentional to pray and ask the Lord, God, put my sin before me. God, convict me. Show me. Where am I seeking after my own desire? God, where am I straying from your command? God, convict me of that. Because God, I I want to walk according to your commands. I'm still going to fail, but Lord, I need your correction in that. We have to be honest. We have to take those assessments. It's the same thing that I always saw at the end of every semester in college, right, where suddenly at the end of the semester, every single student becomes a statistician. Like, I was a history major. I didn't do a lot of math. I did a lot of writing, not a lot of math. But at the end of every semester, it was math time, right? You're, like, creating formulas, and you're plugging stuff in, and you're like, okay, so, you know, like, uh, tests were, like, 25%, and attendance was 10%, quizzes were 30%, and, you know, there's other things, and there's this project that was this percentage, and you got to weigh things, and you got to bath, and suddenly, you know, you're just, you're moving all these numbers around. I'm, like, visualizing in space. I'm just like, okay, you know, I got to move all this together, and, and you're doing it all for the purpose so that you can know, like, okay, all right, so it looks like I need to get 122 on the final, right? Ah, I'm doomed, right? Like that, that, was, that was the process that everyone walks through. Because we recognize when judgment is coming that we need to take an honest assessment of what our lives look like, of what those grades really were. God is saying, I want you to remember that my kingdom is coming, that your salvation is secure if you are in Christ. That is not in doubt. It's not in question. It's not up for debate. He says, but I want you to remember that judgment also comes, that your life, your choices, your obedience matters. And you're not obeying out of a fear of condemnation. You're obeying out of a gratitude for the salvation that Christ secured on your behalf. You didn't earn it. No reason to boast. If you're going to boast, you boast in the name of Christ. Our life matters. So we should live in light of eternity. We should live for that promised reward. We should invest in what matters most. But we do so Hopeful, expectant for the reigning kingdom of Christ. That promised Messiah that we saw described in lots of Old Testament, including in Micah 5. 